Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, I'm Hillary Jordan, and today I'm going to be reading to you from my novel, Mudbound. Mudbound is a tale of forbidden love, betrayal, and murder set on a cotton farm in the Mississippi Delta in 1946. It's told in alternating first-person narratives by the members of two families, the McCallans, the white family who own the farm, and the Jacksons, the black family who work for them as tenant farmers. This is the height of the Jim Crow era in what has been called the most southern place on earth. Cotton was king, fueled by the sharecropping system, which provided cheap labor and kept the people doing it in a kind of perpetual bondage little better than slavery. It was also a time when soldiers were returning from World War II and facing very different welcomes in the South, depending on the color of their skin. Mudbound began as a writing exercise in graduate school. We had an assignment to write three pages in the voice of a family member, and I decided to write about my grandparents' farm from my grandmother's point of view. The farm, which actually was called Mudbound, was this near-mythical place in my family. My grandparents and my mother and aunt, who were little at the time, lived there for a year just after World War II. And out of that tumultuous year came all of these amazing stories, some funny, some horrifying, often both. I love these stories. They were a peephole into a marvelous and contradictory world, a world of terrible beauty. My grandmother was the heroine of most of them for the simple reason that whenever anything calamitous happened, my grandfather was invariably off somewhere else. My mother, aunt, and grandmother always made their time on the farm sound like a grand adventure, and it was only when I sat down to write those three pages that I realized what an ordeal it must have been for her, living and raising her young daughters on a farm with no electricity, no running water, no indoor plumbing, and that, in fact, these were stories of survival. The first words I wrote, which are still in the book, were, When I think of the farm, I think of mud. I'm going to read that scene to you now. It's narrated by Laura McCallan, whose farming-obsessed husband has just uprooted her from her comfortable home in Memphis to a primitive farm in the Delta. To make matters worse, she's stuck taking care of her cantankerous, racist father-in-law. And as you'll see, she's not too happy about any of it. Laura. When I think of the farm, I think of mud. Limbing my husband's fingernails and encrusting the children's knees and hair. Sucking at my feet like a greedy newborn on the breast. Marching in boot-shaped patches across the plank floors of the house. There was no defeat in it. The mud coated everything. I dreamed in brown. When it rained, as it often did, the yard turned into a thick gumbo with a house floating in it like a soggy cracker. When the rains came hard, the river rose and swallowed the bridge that was the only way across. The world was on the other side of that bridge, the world of light bulbs and paved roads and shirts that stayed white. When the river rose, the world was lost to us and we to it. One day slid into the next. My hands did what was necessary, pumping, churning, scouring, scraping, and cooking, always cooking. Snapping beans in the necks of chickens, kneading dough, shucking corn, and digging the eyes out of potatoes. No sooner was breakfast over and the mess cleaned up than it was time to start on dinner. After dinner came supper, 
then breakfast again the next morning. Get up at first light, go to the outhouse, do your business, shivering in the winter, sweating in the summer, breathing through your mouth year-round. Steal the eggs from under the hens, haul in wood from the pile and light the stove, make the biscuits, slice the bacon, and fry it up with the eggs and grits. Rouse your daughters from their bed, brush their teeth, guide arms into sleeves and feet into socks and boots. Take your youngest out to the porch and hold her up so she can clang the bell that will summon your husband from the fields and wake his hateful father in the lean-to next door. Feed them all in yourself. Scrub the iron skillet, the children's faces, the mud off the floors day after day while the old man sits and watches. He is always on you. You better stir them greens, gal. You better sweep that floor now. Better teach them brats some manners. Wash them clothes, feed them chickens, fetch me my cane. His voice clotted from smoking, his sly pale eyes with their hard black centers on you. He scared the children, especially my youngest, who was a little chubby. Come here, little piglet, he'd say to her. She peered at him from behind my legs, at his long yellow teeth, at his bony yellow fingers with their thick curved nails like pieces of ancient horn. Come here and sit on my lap. He had no interest in holding her or any other child. He just liked knowing she was afraid of him. When she wouldn't come, he told her she was too fat to sit on his lap anyway. She might break his bones. She started to cry, and I imagined that old man in his coffin. Pictured the lid closing on his face, the box being lowered into the hole. Heard the dirt striking the wood. Pappy, I said, smiling sweetly at him. How about a nice cup of coffee? But I must start at the beginning if I can find it. Beginnings are elusive things. Just when you think you have hold of one, you look back and see another earlier beginning and an earlier one before that. Even if you start with Chapter 1, I am born, you still have the problem of antecedents, of cause and effect. Why is young David fatherless? Because, Dickens tells us, his father died of a delicate constitution. Yes, but where did this mortal delicacy come from? Dickens doesn't say, so we're left to speculate. A congenital defect, perhaps, inherited from his mother, whose own mother had married beneath her despite her cruel father, who'd been beaten as a child by a nursemaid who was forced into service when her faithless husband abandoned her for a woman he chanced to meet when his carriage wheel broke in front of the milliner's where she'd gone to have her hat trimmed. If we begin there, young David is fatherless because his great-great-grandfather's nursemaid's husband's future mistress's hat needed adornment. By the same logic, my father-in-law was murdered because I was born plain rather than pretty. That's one possible beginning. There are others, because Henry saved Jamie from drowning in the great Mississippi flood in 1927, because Pappy sold the land that should have been Henry's, because Jamie flew too many bombing missions in the war, because a Negro named Ronsel Jackson shone too brightly, because a man neglected his wife and a father betrayed his son and a mother exacted vengeance. I suppose the beginning depends on who's telling the story. No doubt the others would start somewhere different, but they'd still wind up at the same place in the end. It's tempting to believe that what happened on the farm was inevitable, 
that in fact all the events of our lives are as predetermined as the moves in a game of tic-tac-toe. Start in the middle square and no one wins. Start in one of the corners and the game is yours. And if you don't start, if you let the other person start, you lose, simple as that. The truth isn't so simple. Death may be inevitable, but love is not. Love, you have to choose. I'll begin with that, with love. And now we're going to shift voices in places and meet Ronsel Jackson, the son of Lauren Henry's tenants, Hap and Florence. Ronsel is a soldier. He's a member of a highly decorated tank unit called the 761st Tank Battalion. But in this scene, he's still in training. The Army was segregated in World War II, and as you'll see, African-American soldiers were treated very differently from their white brothers-in-arms. And here's Ronsel. They called us Eleanor Roosevelt's niggers. They said we wouldn't fight, that we'd turn tail and run the minute we got into real combat. They said we didn't have the discipline to make good soldiers, that we didn't have brains enough to man tanks, that we were inclined by nature to all kind of wickedness, lying, stealing, raping white women. They said we could see better than the white G.I.s in the dark because we were closer to the beasts. When we were in Wimborne, an English gal I never laid eyes on before came up and patted me right on the butt. I asked her what she was doing, and she said, "'Checking to see if you've got a tail?' "'Why would you think that?' I said. She said the white G.I.s had been telling all the English girls that Negroes were more monkey than human. We slept in separate barracks, ate in separate mess halls, shit in separate latrines. We even had us a separate blood supply— God forbid any wounded white boys would end up with Negro blood in their veins. They gave us the dregs of everything, including officers. Our lieutenants were mostly Southerners who'd washed out in some other post. Drunkards, yellow bellies, bigoted no-count crackers who couldn't have led their way out of a one-room shack in broad daylight. Putting them over black troops was the Army's way of punishing them. They had nothing but contempt for us, and they made sure we knew it. At the officers' club, they liked to sing We're Dreaming of a White Battalion to the tune of White Christmas. We heard about it from the colored staff who had to wait on their sorry white asses while they sang it. If they'd have all been like that, I probably would have ended up fertilizing some farmer's field in France or Belgium along with every other man in my unit. Lucky for us, we had a few good white officers. The ones out of West Point were mostly fair and decent and our C.O. always treated us respectful. They say you're not as clean as other people, he told us. There's a simple answer to that. Make damn sure you're cleaner than anybody else you ever saw in your life, especially all those white bastards out there. Make your uniforms look neater than theirs. Make your boots shine brighter. And that's exactly what we did. We aimed to make the 761st the best tank battalion in the whole army. We trained hard, first at Camp Claiborne, then at Camp Hood. There were five men to a tank, each with his own job to do, but we all had to learn each other's jobs, too. I was the driver, had a feel for it from the very first day. Funny how many of us farm boys ended up in the driver's seat. Reckon if you can get a mule to go where you want it to, you can steer a Sherman tank. We spent a lot of time at the range, shooting all kind of weapons, Forty-fives, machine guns, cannons. We went on maneuvers in the Kasachi National Forest and did combat simulations with live ammo. 
we knew they were testing our courage, and we passed with flying colors. Hell, most of us were more scared of getting snake bit than getting hit by a bullet. Some of the water moccasins they had down there were ten feet long, and that's no lie. In July of 42, we got our first black lieutenants. There were only three of them, but we all walked with our heads a little bit high after that, at least on the base. Off base, in the towns where we took our liberty, we walked real careful. In Colleen, they put up a big sign for us at the end of Main Street. Niggas have to leave this town by 9 p.m. The paint was red, in case we missed the point. Colleen didn't have a colored section. Only about half of them little towns did. The one in Alexandria near Camp Claiborne was typical. Nothing to it but a fallen-down movie theater and two shabby juke joints. Wasn't no place to buy anything or set and eat a meal. The rest of the town was off-limits to us. If the MPs or the local law caught you in the white part of town, they'd beat the shit out of you. Our uniforms didn't mean a damn to the local white citizens. Not that I expected them to, but my buddies from up north and out west were thunderstruck by the way we were treated. Reading about Jim Crow in the paper is a mighty different thing from having a civilian bus driver wave a pistol in your face and tell you to get your coon hide off the bus to make room for a fat white farmer. They just couldn't understand it, no matter how many times we tried to explain it to them. You got to go along to get along, we told them. Got to humble down and play shut mouth when you around white folks. But a lot of them just couldn't do it. There was this Yankee private in Fort Knox. That's where most of the guys in the battalion did their basic training. He got into an argument with a white storekeeper who wouldn't sell him a pack of smokes and ended up tied with a rope to the fender of a car and dragged up and down the street. That was just one killing out of dozens we heard about. The longer I spent around guys from other parts of the country, the madder I got myself. Here we were about to risk our lives for people who hated us as bad as they hated the Krauts or the Japs, and maybe even worse. The Army didn't do nothing to protect us from the locals. When local cops beat up colored G.I.s, the Army looked the other way. When the bodies of dead black soldiers turned up outside a camp, the MPs didn't even try to find out who did it. It didn't take a genius to see why. The beatings, the lousy food and what all, the piss-poor officers, they all added up to one thing. The army wanted us to fail. Finally, I'm going to read the scene where Ronsel, uh, who is a war hero and a sergeant by this time, returns home from Europe to help his parents on the farm. He arrives uh, just as disaster has befallen his family. His father has broken his leg in an accident, and the family has lost their mule, which means they're now forced to pay the McCallans three-quarters of their crop as opposed to half. The scene takes place in Tricklebanks, the local general store, and it's narrated by Laura. One Saturday at the end of April, the five of us went into town to do errands and have dinner at Dex's Diner, famed for its fried catfish and the sign outside that read, Jesus loves you, Monday to Friday, 6 to 2, Saturdays 6 to 8. After we ate, we stopped at Tricklebanks to get the week's provisions. Henry and Pappy lingered on the front porch with Orr Stokes and some other men, and the girls and I went inside to visit with the ladies. While I chatted with Rose, Amanda Lee and Isabel ran off to play with her two girls. We'd been chatting for a few minutes when a Negro soldier came in the back door. He was a tall young man with skin the color of strong tea. There were sergeant stripes on his sleeves and a great many medals on his chest. He had a duffel bag slung over one broad shoulder. 
Howdy, Miss Tricklebank, he said. Been a long time. His voice was sonorous and full of music. It rang out loudly in the confines of the store, startling the ladies. Is that you, Ronsel? Rose said wonderingly. He grinned. Yes, ma'am, last time I looked. So this was Florence's son. She told me all about him, of course, how smart he was, how handsome and brave, how he'd taken to book learning like a fish to water, how he drew people to him like bees to honey, and so on. Ain't just me talking mama nonsense, she declared. Ronsel's got a shine to him. You'll see it the minute you lay eyes on him. The gals all want to be with him, and the men all want to be like him. They can't help it. They drawn to that shine. I had thought it was mama nonsense, though I hadn't said so. What mother doesn't believe her firstborn son has more than his fair share of God's gifts? But when I saw Ronsel standing there in trickle banks, I understood exactly what she meant. He dipped his head politely to me and the other ladies. Afternoon, he said. Well, I declare, said Rose, aren't you grown up? How you been doing, Miss Tricklebank? Getting along fine. You seen your folks yet? No, ma'am, he said. Bus just got in. I stopped to buy a few things for him. I studied him as Rose helped him with his purchases. He looked more like Hap, but he had Florence's way of filling up a room and then some. You couldn't help but watch him. He had that kind of force. He glanced over at me curiously, and I realized he'd caught me staring. I'm Mrs. McAllen, I said, a little embarrassed. Your parents work on our farm. How do you, he said. His eyes only met mine briefly, but in those few seconds I had the feeling I'd been thoroughly assessed. Do Hap and Florence know you're coming home, I said. No, ma'am. Wanted to surprise them. Well, I know they'll be mighty glad to see you. His forehead wrinkled in concern. Are they all right? He didn't miss much, this son of Florence's. I hesitated, then told him about Hap's accident, emphasizing the positive. He's using crutches now, and the doctor said he should be walking again by June. Thank God for that. He can't stand to be idle. He's probably driving Mama crazy being underfoot all day. Uneasily, I looked away from him. What is it? he asked. I realized suddenly that the other women had gone dead silent and were watching us, making no effort at discretion. Some looked shocked, others hostile. Rose looked concerned, and her eyes held a warning. I turned back to Ronsel. Your parents lost their mule, I said, and then we had a spell of bad weather. They're using our stock now, and your mother's working in the fields with your brothers. His jaw tightened and his eyes turned cold. Thank you for telling me, he said. The ironic emphasis on the first two words was impossible to miss. I heard a sharp intake of breath from Alice Stokes. Excuse me, I said to Ronsel. I have shopping to do. As I walked away from him, I heard him say, I'll come back for that cloth later, Miss Tricklebank. I better get on home now. He paid Rose hurriedly and headed for the front door with his purchases in his duffel bag. Just before he reached it, it opened, and Pappy came in, followed by Ora Stokes and Doc Turpin. Ronsel stopped just short of running into him. Beg pardon, he said. He tried to step around him, but Oris moved to stand in his way. Well, looky here, a jig in uniform. Ronsel's body went very still, and his eyes locked with Oris's. But then he dropped his gaze and said, Sorry, sir, I wasn't paying attention. Where do you think you're going, boy? 
said Doc Turpin. Just trying to get home to see my folks. The door opened again, and Henry and a few other men came inside, crowding behind Pappy, Oris, and Doc Turpin. All of them wore unfriendly expressions. I felt a flicker of fear. Honey, I called out to Henry. This has happened Florence's son, Ronsel, just returned from overseas. Well, that explains it then, drawled Pappy. Explains what, said Ronsel. While you're trying to leave by the front door, you must be confused as to your whereabouts. I ain't confused, sir. Oh, I think you are, boy, Pappy said. I don't know what they let you do over there, but you're in Mississippi now. Niggas don't use the front here. Why don't you go out the back where you belong, said Oris. I think you'd better, said Henry. Go on now. It got very quiet. The air fairly crackled with hostility. I saw muscles tense and hands clench into fists. But if Ronsel was afraid, he didn't show it. He looked slowly around the store, meeting the eyes of every man and woman there, mine included. Just go, I pleaded with him silently. He let the moment drag out, waiting until just before the breaking point to speak. You know, sir, you're right, he said to Pappy. We didn't go in the back over there. They put us right out in front, right there on the front lines, face to face with the enemy. And that's where we stayed the whole time we were there. The Jerry's killed some of us, but in the end we kicked the hell out of them. Yes, sir, we sure did. With a nod to Rose, he turned and strode out the back door. Did you hear what he just said? sputtered Pappy. Nigger like that ain't going to last long around here, said Oris. Maybe we ought to teach him better manners, said Doc Turpin. Things might have turned ugly, but Henry stepped forward and faced them, hands up and palms out. No need for that. I'll have a word with his father. For a moment I was afraid they wouldn't back down, but then Oris said, See that you do, McCallan. The men dispersed, and the tension lifted. I did my shopping and rounded up the girls, and we left trickle banks. On the way back to Mudbound, we came upon Ronsel walking down the middle of the road. He moved to one side to let us pass. As we went by him, I traded another glance with him through the open window of the car. His eyes were defiant, and they were shining. To learn more about Mudbound, go to my website, www.hillaryjordan.com, and to subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.